us to take a look together this morning at uh, the Acts of the Apostles, the ministry of St. Paul, recorded for us in the 17th chapter of Acts. We'll begin reading in the 22nd verse. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus in Athens, and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served, or should we say created, by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him important though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is, uh, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God was overlooked in times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which uh, he will have the world judge in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And at that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. I see in every way, Paul said to the Athenians, in the Areopagus. I see in every way that you are religious. For I see an altar on which is written to an unknown God. And then he went on to say, so let me tell you about this heretofore unknown God. Mickey and I moved Karen from Louisiana to Savannah back in 1996. Never having been to that city, one of the first things that Mickey and I did uh, after we got Karen moved in and she started to work at her new job at, at SCAD was we went down and took a trolley tour of Savannah so we could better understand this brave new world into which our baby girl was now going to be living. The next day we went out to Tybee Island where I saw the Atlantic Ocean for the very first time. 
I grew up on Gulf of Mexico. So it had been a bunch of times, but it never seen the Atlantic before that period of time. And during that week we spent here with her as we moved her in, I, I, Mickey and I both found ourselves falling in love with Southeast Georgia in general and with the, the Savannah area in particular. And it was also, it was also the first time we'd ever heard of this place called Statesboro. Little did we know <laughs> what Statesboro would come to be for us in the years to come. You know, one of the first things I think that many of us do when we, when we go to a new place or encounter uh, a new environment is to, to take a general look around to kind of see what it's, uh, what it's like. And St. Paul was, was no different than we would be. And when he first went to Athens, he looked around and he experienced the sights and the sounds there in the heart of Western civilization and he was particularly interested in its religious heritage and culture. As was his custom, Paul also spent some time preaching and teaching in the synagogues of the city and took an occasion or two to preach in the marketplace as well. Now, back in the ancient world, the marketplace was kind of the, like an internet uh, chat book or, or, uh, or chat room or Facebook you know, that we have today where we share all our thoughts and our ideas and all this sort of business. They had to go to the marketplace to do that. They couldn't sit down at the computer and do that. And one of the groups who heard Paul speaking and preaching on that occasion found him interested, uh, interesting enough to invite him uh, to the Areopagus where the intellectuals of, of that day would uh, spend considerable amount of time uh, discussing the various issues and theologies and theories that were uh, going on at, at the time. May we know what teaching you present, they told Paul, or perhaps what God or theology you represent. For they said, you bring us some th strange things to our ears and we wish to know what these things mean. We've not heard about this Jesus before. What's he all about? And what has it to do with us? And so as he all walked into the academic arena on that particular occasion, Paul couldn't help but noticing all of the shrines and the statues that had been placed throughout. And he saw references to every kind of God imaginable. And just to be sure, just in case they had missed one somewhere along the line, they even had a shrine or a statue to an unknown God. And when he saw that, he saw that shrine, saw that statue, Paul knew that he had his lead in to talk to them about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. I think it's important, it's significant to note that he began and he first got their attention by flattering them. I see how religious you are, he said, in every way. And Paul, in seeing all of these uh, statues and whatnot around, realized that these people were searching for truth. 
They were looking for something deep and significant and meaningful in their lives. And they apparently had not found it among these other deities because otherwise why have this to the unknown deity? So he told them that he had found the one for whom they were looking. He had, had discovered the object of their search, if you would, and it was indeed this heretofore unknown God. Here was a, no, here was the God who said, he said, who was not made by human hands with earthly materials. He was rather the one who had made heaven and earth and we human beings as well. And he kind of went on to say, and this is, uh, as those of you familiar with my teaching and preaching know that, uh, you know, we have the, the gospel according to Unsaint Bob periodically, and, and here's one of, the, one of the readings thereof. And Paul kind of told them, he said, fellas, if you're going to be religious, you might as well do it right. If you're going to worship and adore something, then worship, adore something, someone worthy of your time and of your attention. If you're going to serve a God, don't be satisfied with some cheap imitation that you've made with your own two hands. Rather, let me introduce you to the real deal. And here he is. Now, Paul could have began his discussion, I suppose, with something like, you bunch of knuckleheads, don't you know anything? But in his wisdom, in God's wisdom, he didn't do that. He could have cited literally hundreds of differences between his faith and theirs, between his God, the real God, and their idols. Instead, he used that one point of unity to bring them into the fold. Now, it wasn't much, perhaps, this statue to an unknown God, but it was apparently enough. And Paul used it, God used it, to open the door to the gospel to all of Europe there in the capital of Western culture and in the birthplace of modern civilization. And Acts tells us that although some scoffed at his teaching, Others, more importantly, others were convinced, they were convicted, they were converted, and they began to follow Paul not only on his subsequent journeys, but in what was called back then the way, which is how they refer to Christianity or the church. And I believe that Paul's approach to them on that occasion was, was highly significant. And I do so in a time when we seem to, to go out of our way to find and to highlight the differences that exist between us. And finding those differences, which is, after all, not all that difficult to do. Finding those differences, today we tend to, 
use them to build walls and fences and all kinds of barriers between ourselves and others. We build walls of race, of creed, of culture, of nationality. We build fences of gender, of politics, of standards of living. We build barriers of lifestyle, ideology, and theology. Now, don't misunderstand. The differences which exist in our world today between people and groups are very real. And I'm certainly not standing up here to tell you that they are unimportant. I mean, after all, our differences are what make us individuals. They, they're what make us unique and special. And each and every one of us is something that nobody else in the world is or ever has been or ever will be. Instead of celebrating that specialness, instead of affirming our uniqueness, so often today we tend to use these differences uh, to drive a wedge between ourselves and others and the world around us. But having said this, I'm forced to say at the same time that it's not so much what divides us that's causing all the problems today. It's rather that we refuse to see what unites us, what we have in common. And so we wind up with a situation like we're in today across the world, tearing one another down and, and being likewise torn up and apart in the process. And so I ask you this morning, <clears throat> wouldn't the world, wouldn't our church, wouldn't our nation, our state, our city, even the university across the street, wouldn't all of the entities of our lives perhaps be a lot better, a lot more sane, if like St. Paul we could just see a little of our commonality and if we could work on that which we hold in common like Paul did in Athens? What would happen, do you suppose, if Congress became as obsessed with building up America as it was with tearing down the other party or branches of government, what would my adopted state now, Georgia, become if our representatives in Atlanta would just try to work things out with one another to do what's right for Georgia as a whole rather than spending so much time and effort and energy protecting their own power bases and petty interests? What would happen, do you suppose, in our homes and our families? What would they be like if husbands and wives could see in each other what brought them together in the first place? what attracted them to one another at the beginning of their relationship? And what if 
in remembering that or those things, we, we began once more to build upon that. Trying to make a stable and lasting relationship, a home and a family once more. Or what would happen if we in the church would remember our common unity in Christ Jesus our Lord instead of emphasizing all of the petty points of theology on which we disagree and differ. And perhaps to quit preaching and go to meddling. What would happen if we in Pittman Park could rally behind one central purpose, one goal, one calling, if you would, and go from there. Would we not be a driving force for Jesus Christ in this community if we were able to so focus? The one place... The one place that many families still have the, mo <clears throat> the most common ground in their life together is around the dinner table. Now, I know that doesn't hold quite the central place in, in families today that it did in generations gone by, but nonetheless, those, uh, those moments around the family table are, at least I think they absolutely should be, really sacred and, and special moments. It's a place for the family to gather as one to share a common meal, a common heritage, a common story, and a common purpose. In a like manner, we in Christ's family today have the privilege of gathering around His table. We come together to share this common meal, to remember our common heritage, our common story, and our common purpose. We come to confirm our common loyalties and commitments. We come to affirm our common goals and purposes. And I'd like to think that we could use these moments at this table this morning to be a starting place in our journey toward unity, as well perhaps as a significant stop in our mutual journey towards God. And so I now invite you to join with me in this sacred and special celebration of our common union, which is what the base words of communion really are. And we begin to do so with this invitation. We're always busy and there's never enough time, often not even for God. And yet we never seem to get everything done and we wonder why. But God doesn't want our busyness. God wants our lives, not for his sake, but for our own. So they will have true meaning and purpose.
And so in these moments, may we focus on God and on God's will for us and for our world, beginning with our acknowledgement through confession that we, aren't all, we haven't always done a very good job of listening for God or of loving one another as we should. Let's pray together, shall we? O oh God, above all and in all, you desire a harmony of heart and mind, of humanity and creation, of people with people. Yet we must confess that we often prefer to notice the differences, to point out the flaws, to look for the contradictions. The interconnections that invite us with you, with one another, and the world around us are often lost in a sea of distinctions. Healing God, forgive us and weave us back together. Break down the walls that divide us and let the unity of your spirit flow in us and between us in Christ's name. Given new life and risen from the dead, the Lord Jesus calls us to life eternal in him. For in him we are a new creation, and in his name we are granted forgiveness and abundant life. May God's goodness resound in our voices, and may our lives be lived in praise. Amen. Lord, we are most grateful to you for all of creation, for farmlands and forests, for mountains and coastal plain, for city and suburb. We're grateful for prophets and priests, for pastors and healers, for nations and especially for our own, for the church of Jesus Christ and for this congregation in which we celebrate and share our faith. We appreciate the quiet times as well as those joyful times that we share in and with one another. We're grateful, Lord, for all of the ways that you have made yourself known to us. But especially are we grateful for Jesus and his self-giving love, even as we express our gratitude for all of those persons and all of those ways through whom and in which Christ has been revealed to us. And now we remember how on that night when he was betrayed, Jesus took a simple loaf of bread and gave thanks to you for it. Then he broke it and gave it to his disciples, inviting them to eat that symbol of his soon-to-be broken body in his sacred memory. And when that special meal was over, he took the cup and filled it with wine. And again he gave thanks to you and passed it among his followers, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, he told him. Drink it always in memory of me until I come again. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that these sacred gifts will reveal to us once more the truth of your never-ending love. Through them, make us and all things new. In the name of the one who has come, who is coming, and will continue to come again 
and again and again. And hear us now as we unite our hearts and our voices in the prayer that he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to invite Mickey and the Darcy's up as we begin to uh, receive these sacred elements of God's love in our midst. <laughs> 